All right, well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, um, and I've come to share with you. We're continuing our series. Uh, Jaron started for us last week of Up, In, and Out. If you've been here for uh, any period of time, you are probably a little bit tired of hearing Up, In, and Out, um, but we're probably going to keep saying it because that is what we're trying to do here. We want to focus on the up, the in, and the out. I'm sorry, Owen, I'm not comfortable enough doing the dance. Um, but ask going to display the dance for you after service today. But um, so Jaron started out last week um, talking about praise uh, and what is praise. And, and so today I'm going to move into the in portion uh, of our series to talk about what is going on in us internally. And sometimes, you know, we think, well, we're not supposed to focus internally. We're not supposed to focus on ourselves. We're supposed to focus outside of ourselves. And, and, and that's somewhat true. Um, but I, I kind of want to make the argument today that um, it is what you focus on internal that drives what you do externally, that, um, that God has called us to things like discipleship and sanctification so that we can execute his will out in the world through studying his word. And, and we do that both individually, but we also do it corporately. We do it together, that there's a reason we are all physically here this morning to study the word together, to worship together, to hear uh, what God has called us to today. Um, and so what I want to do when, when we talk about in, um, instead of just maybe giving you a list of things that here's all the things that you need to check off your box, uh, off your boxes in order to, to focus on the in, what I want to do today is just focus on the why. Right, if you, if you want to do or accomplish anything in life, you have to have a strong enough why. Right, why are you doing it? What's the purpose? What's the end goal? If you have a strong enough why, then you'll do it. But if you don't have a strong enough why, you'll, you'll what? You'll quit. You'll give up. And so this morning, I want to talk about a why that I think most of us will, will find pretty interesting, um, and that is happiness. Right, and, and so um, happiness kind of gets a bad rep uh, in the church, we, we spend a lot of time kind of, kind of saying things like life doesn't have to be happy and, and God doesn't owe us happiness. And, and that's true. I've, I've certainly taught that. But what I want to talk about today is maybe redefining how we look at happiness, that what does that word happiness really mean? Um, and so if you have your Bibles with you or a phone, go ahead and flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Um, this will be a fairly familiar passage for a lot of you today, um, because I think sometimes happiness is more easily defined by what brings it rather than, than what it is itself, right? We, we think about how is happiness achieved. Um, so if I were to ask you that question, what would make you happy? And, and I would maybe even encourage you, pretend for a second like we're not in church right now, that you're not, uh, maybe don't think about the Sunday school answer um, or the Jesus answer. The, those things are obviously true. But if you're being honest, some days, what, what brings you happiness, right? What would you think of? Money, right? For, for me, sometimes that's, that's kind of what I think of. If I were being totally honest, um, I would think of money. Now, we all know the rule. Money does not buy happiness, but there are definitely days when I don't believe that that's true. <laughs> there, there are days when I think, you know what, it might do a pretty good job, <laughs> like it might, it might get me pretty close, <clears throat> right? More often than I, than I want to admit, um, the lottery recently with its crazy number, like over a billion dollars, which is just kind of unfathomable, unfathomable to think about, um, you can't help but a little bit to go, what would I do with that money? 
And those thoughts make you happy, right? In the moment, they make you happy. Um, But what we do know is that there are lots of people in the world that have money. They have lots of money. They have more money than they know how to spend. And yet their life is marked with pain and struggle and difficulty, and they, they are not happy. And so we know that it's, that it's not money that brings happiness. <clears throat> Some people look to their career, right? A, a little bit different from money. Sometimes money's involved in that, but, but some people think if I achieve a certain level of success, I have a, a level of um, gratification that comes from being successful in your career. But the problem comes up again there that, that if that's really where you find your hope and your happiness— you're never going to quite be there, right? There's always another step. There's always a higher level. There's something else that you need to attain, and you'll spend your whole life chasing after something that doesn't actually satisfy, that always leaves you just one step short of where you want to be. For a lot of us, um, we think happiness is fi- found in comfort, found in, in rest. Everything around us is set up to make us comfortable, right? Air conditioning. I always say that if air conditioning didn't exist, I would not live here. There is absolutely no way. I would move somewhere north where I can freeze and be happy, right? Now, I would love to say that the air conditioning problems that you're maybe experiencing this morning are just an elaborate illustration for me to use today. Um, They're not. The air conditioner's actually broken. Um, So I'm sorry, we we don't have a quick fix for that, but we're working on it. We're working on it. But but think about your life. Everything around you um, is meant to make you comfortable. Right, that, that's, that's what our culture pushes us towards. I was talking to uh, a few of our members the other day, and, we, and we, we talked about the fact that actually everybody experiences comfort and rest a little bit differently. Right, when you think about your vacations, think, of, think about the last time you went on vacation, there's two different kinds of people in the world. Right, there's the person who they go on vacation and they don't set an alarm, they don't make a schedule. They're going to go just wherever the day and the wind takes them the, the next day. And then you have the person who wakes up at 6 o'clock in the morning because breakfast is served at 6.30 and the first family activity is at 7, right? That, that person is ready to go. And typically those people marry each other, right? And, and so there, there are two differently, yeah, you know. I think I hit a nerve there, maybe. You guys can talk about that. But... Um, but there's, people experience rest and comfort differently, but at the end of the day, we think, if I can just be comfortable enough, then I can be happy. But where does, where does that search go to? Just this obsessive search with comfort, where does it lead? It leads to laziness. We know that God created the world uh, and work to be hard, right? He told man, work's going to be hard. Life is not supposed to be all about comfort. So laziness, comfort is not the key to happiness. And, of course, we could go on and on. There are are lots of things that we could plug in here um, that don't lead to something, uh, that don't lead to happiness, but they all have something in common. All of these things have something in common in that they can be achieved. That if you manipulate and set up your life in a certain way, you can create these circumstances. You can create money. You can create a career. You can create comfort for yourself But my argument this morning is that happiness is actually not something that's achieved, right? It's not something that we can just set up for ourselves. Happiness is not changing your circumstances. True happiness is contentment in the Lord no matter what your circumstances are. 
right? Contentment in God, loving and enjoying him regardless of where you are in your life. And so as we, as we continue on today, let's let that be our definition. Not, not a fleeting, emotional, positive feeling, but contentment in the Lord. And we're going to talk about how that definition is required if, if we're going to understand this passage today. You, you become happy not by creating an environment that is, that is most pleasurable to you, but by loving God, changing what it is that brings you that happiness, changing what it is that brings you pleasure and joy and rest. So I think that the Beatitudes are something that lead us in that direction. They, they not only describe the characteristics of someone who is happy, but they also give the reason why. They explain why that person would be happy. And so what we're going to do today, we're going we're to read it, and then we're just going to walk through all eight of the Beatitudes um, and kind of look and see what they, what they tell us. So Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, and, and so as we, as we talk about that, most of your translations probably do say the word uh, blessed there. But another way that we could describe that, another way that word could be translated is happy. Right? Those, those two things are fairly interchangeable here. Again, not forgetting that kind of modern usage of the word happy has watered it down, has kind of changed it to that emotional type feeling. So, so when we do say, you know, happy are the poor in spirit, we do mean that other definition of happiness that I'm talking about. And I think it's helpful to break down this passage into really two columns, right? On the left, you have the characteristics of someone who is happy, of someone who is blessed. And then on the right, you'll have what are the things that bring them happiness. And so we, we get to take note of what Jesus considers as those things that will bring happiness, right? And we'll see that there's a pretty stark contrast between those and the, what we see in the world. Now, if you're like me, you, you hear, okay, well, here's, here's another big list of things that I need to be or do that I'm going to fail at. You, you start to get a little bit stressed. Um, but I don't want you to be stressed because Jesus, as he often does, begins this list with something that is incredibly comforting. The very first thing that he talks about is being poor in spirit, right? No, notice that that's incredibly exciting. That should be really encouraging to us if you're worried about being able to live up to this list because he didn't say the perfect attendance guy. He didn't say the Bible trivia champion, right? He said poor in spirit, I, I'm poor in spirit, right? I, I can do that. I'm a, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know how often I mess up. This is a huge relief that, that what this is requiring of us is simply the sincere acknowledgement of just how sinful we are, of just how far we are 
from what is considered righteousness, that, that we, are, we are beyond self-repair and that we need a Savior. And so we're humbled. We're poor in spirit. A little bit later in Matthew 9, verse 10 through 12, it says, And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He didn't, he didn't come for the perfect superhuman, right? He came for the sick. He came for the poor in spirit. He came for us. That, that verse should be a rallying cry for us. That should be a constant source of comfort to say when we're feeling down and, and bad about ourselves, when the enemy is attacking us or our insecurities are just popping up about how terrible we are, we get to say, you know what? That's true. That's right. I am a sinner. I do mess up all the time. I, I am a disappointment, and Jesus came for me. Jesus came for that person. And so he gives us great encouragement right off the bat that this is not some list of achievements, but it is acknowledging our sin. And what is the reward for that person? The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. It communicates this idea and ties into what we're talking about, that happiness is had by those who enjoy the kingdom of heaven, right? It doesn't say they will be blessed with money. It says they will receive the kingdom of heaven. So we've got to ask ourselves, is the kingdom of God what I find joy in? Is that what I find comfort and peace in? D.A. Carson explains that the poor in spirit are those who joyfully accept his rule and participate in the life of the kingdom, right? So we're redefining what happiness is. That's what happiness is. Not in the things of the world, but we find happiness in God, our creator. Next we move on. We have those who mourn are blessed. Um, this is one of the more ironic ones, as, you, as I said earlier. If you, if you use that word happy instead of blessed, what you, what you come up with is happy are the sad. There's an author who uh, wrote a, wrote a uh, chapter on this, on this verse, and he titles it, Happy Are the Sad. Okay, that should tell you right off the bat, okay, we're, we're working with a different definition of happiness here, right? It's very, it's kind of confusing. It has to prove to be one of the more confusing beatitudes, but it's illustrating the difference between worldly definition of happiness and the biblical one. This morning is not talking about being sad over your circumstances, it's not talking about being frustrated with where your life is going. Um, if you look at the rest of the Beatitudes, you see all of them are kind of an internal response to our sin and an internal response to the gospel. And so this is the same way here. The person who mourns is someone who mourns over their sin, right? This person is happy because happiness is not that emotional response. It's a deeper, lasting commitment that this, this type of mourning is deep. It's utterly sorrowful. It's the kind that brings a distinct kind of, of pain and sting as a result of our sin. So how can that person be happy? How can that person be comforted? What could they be comforted by? Well, fortunately, we, we get to know that answer, that they may feel pain, they may feel mourning and difficulty now, but one day we know they will be comforted by the power of the cross. Now notice it, it is in the future tense, right? They will be comforted. 
right? So, so that, that feeling of comfort may not come right now. It may not come quickly, but it is coming, and we can find our hope and our joy in that. In Luke chapter 6, he, Jesus actually kind of highlights the, the opposite of this, where he says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. All right, we need to be people who take our sin seriously, who mourn over it. If you, if you laugh at your sin, you will mourn later. But if you mourn over your sin, if you weep over your sin, you'll be comforted. Believers would be foolish just to look for quick ways to make ourselves feel better about our sin. There are times when we need to sit in the pain of our sin and mourn over it, knowing that one day we'll be comforted. Next, we move on to the gentle or the meek. Um, we're, we're continuing this theme of each characteristic being tied so closely to the gospel. If you've not picked up on that theme yet, it's, it's definitely there. Somebody who is gentle is not someone who dominates other people or situations to get what they want, right? I, I believe this beatitude is tied a lot to the idea of control, right? Uh, uh, the opposite of someone who's gentle is someone who's controlling. Uh, the, the controlling person can't have happiness because they're, they're constantly trying to work everything around them in order to get and force their way. They lack the faith to let God's plan play out, right? They're controlling other people. The gentle person on the other side knows that God is in control and trusts that they don't have to control everything around them, that, that they can simply be gentle and move forward. To me, this is one of the more kind of shocking characteristics of Jesus, Right, when you consider that he's, he's God, but as he walks around as a man, you read the Gospels, his gentleness is one of the first things that just, that just pops out at me. It doesn't really make sense. You expect him, uh, more often than not, you expect him to yell and be angry and voice his, his disapproval and, and humiliate the sinners that he comes into contact with, but it, that's not what he does. His response almost every time is a gentle one. Matthew 11, he talks about his, his heart towards those who follow him. In verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's a, Dane Ortland wrote a book um, called Gentle and Lowly. It's, it's around, centered right around this passage. If it's not one that you've picked up, uh, I would encourage you, and actually I have uh, several free copies. Um, so if you'd like a copy, but it, but it really pulls out this idea of being gentle and lowly. Some of the guys last semester, we got a chance to walk through and talk about it. Um, but we see that he is gentle. And so we have someone to imitate. When we want to know what's it like to be gentle, we can imitate him. And it's this person who's invited. Again, it's in the future, right? It doesn't look like it's just now, but they will inherit the whole earth. It's talking about the, the new earth that is renewed and created, an earth that is free from sin and the consequences of sin, and we get to inherit that if we are gentle like our Savior is. Then we move on to verse 6. It talks about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Again, all of these are connected. Um, it shows a yearning for the world to be freed from sin, right? Here it takes a more personal approach that the believer who desires to be set free from their sin, to be set free from their own chains that they have put around themselves in their sin, 
See, on this earth, before we move into the new heavens and the new earth, we are in constant conflict with ourselves. That we're in this internal struggle and battle between I want to be righteous, I want to do the right things, but we also have this desire to do what we want and to seek pleasure and to, and to pursue the things of the world. Paul makes an attempt to describe this battle in Romans. He says, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. If you're confused by that passage, it's okay. Uh, I, tried to, I remember I tried to memorize this in college and my head just exploded. Like it was not, uh, it was not possible. It was incredibly frustrating to understand and, and, and frustrating and confusing to understand. But I actually think that, that confusion, that frustration can kind of help display what we're dealing with. That as we struggle inside of ourselves, we want to do the good things, but we, but we don't do them, right? But that's what God gives us is the desire to pursue righteousness, that we, that we have trouble executing it, yes, but in those moments when we're conflicted, when we're annoyed and confused with ourselves for continuing to make the same mistake over and over and over, year after year, even when our desires for righteousness, we're told in this passage that one day we will find happiness. We will be satisfied. What will we be satisfied with? It's not food or money or comfort, we will be satisfied in our search for righteousness because we will be made righteous. We will be made perfect as he is perfect. And because we are poor in spirit, because we mourn our sin, we know that that work is not on our own shoulders. It's not something that we do, but on the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 7 tells us that the merciful will be happy. Why would a merciful person be happy? Because they will receive mercy. Right? If you mourn over your sin, if you're poor in spirit, it's easy to understand, it's, it's a lot easier to see that you need to provide mercy for those who make mistakes because you know of your own. Right? I was talking to a buddy the other day and we talked about one of the better examples in Scripture is that of Joseph. Right? If you know the story of Joseph, he, he goes through one of the worst experiences that you can imagine. He's ambushed by his own family, by his own brothers. He's sold into slavery. He's imprisoned. He, he just goes through all of these difficulties. And then at the end of the story, he has an opportunity to get revenge. He, he, his brothers come to him needing something, not knowing that it's him, but they, but they need something. They need food. They're going to they're gonna starve. And he has the opportunity to stick it to them. But he doesn't. He provides mercy. Right? He gives them mercy. He gives us a great example of that. Those who show mercy are happy for, for, honestly, for a lot of reasons, but the most important one being that they will receive mercy in return. Now, it's important to know it's, it's not an equal amount. It's not, a, it's not an easy exchange between the two. John Chrysostom points out 
The reward at first glance appears to be an equal reimbursement, but actually the reward from God is much greater. We ourselves are showing mercy as human beings, but we are obtaining mercy from the God of all. By nature of who we are and who he is, that exchange of mercy is not anywhere close to the same thing. Right, we, we know that what we bring to the table is, is barely even crumbs. But what God brings is a feast. And so we, we get this mercy. We gain this happiness by receiving that mercy in verse 7. When you move down to verse 8, we're going to move a little quicker through these last few. Um, again, it's talking about the internal state of a person, that that purity, he wants to make clear that there's a distinction here between this verse and verse 6. They're not quite the same. Um, true righteousness is, of course, both internal and external. But, but the Jewish audience that, that Matthew is writing to here um, most likely would have struggled with doing things internally. right? That, that they were very good at washing the outside of the cup. Matthew 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And so what he's saying is happiness is reserved for those who are pure on the inside, who seek out purity on the inside as well. And again, we ask, what's the source of their happiness? It's to see God. Right, The ultimate reward for any believer, for anybody who finds their happiness and their joy in God, is to see him where your faith is finally exchanged for sight. You're relieved of the struggle between faith and doubt. That suddenly it becomes ultimately clear and your doubts are annihilated. Next we learn of the peacemakers. Again, there's a distinction between this and the gentle. Certainly a gentle person is likely also to be to be peaceful, but this is someone who's active in peace, who engages in, in peaceful activity, in reconciliation. And so I think we can, make, uh, we can make peace in two different ways. One is to share the gospel, is to go to those who are bound in their sin, who, who are bound for hell, and share the gospel with them, telling them of the relief that Christ has given them on the cross, and thus bringing ultimate peace to their life. But I think we can also be peacemakers by living a life that is not seeking division, that, uh, that seeks to reconcile, um, that seeks not to fight and have division, but to be unified, to be together, that we seek out peace between one another. And, and again, those are given an incredible gift of happiness that, that comes from being called an heir of God sons of God, to be considered within his fold, right? It's, it's kind of an echo of what you hear all, all over and over in the Old Testament. I will be your God, you will be my people, right? Just another one of those rallying cries that as Christians, this is something that we get to preach to ourselves over and over and over, that he will be our God, we will be his people. We are under his protection. And that leads us to the last beatitude in verse 10. A helpful comparison here that, that seems to say something that, that doesn't make sense at first look. It's kind of like the, the morning um, passage. Blessed are those who have been persecuted. How in the world is, is that something that's possible? If you read a description that you see in that, that left column, right, that, 
uh, that seems like a pretty good person, that that's somebody who's humble, gentle, merciful, they're a, they're a peacemaker. Who doesn't like that person, right? Why, why would that person engage or, or be engaged in persecution, be the target of persecution? It's because the world hates what God loves. So there's, there's going to be persecution in one form or another. If you're living your life for the glory of God, that stands in contrast to what the world calls good. There will be persecution. Right? And this kind of slams the door. If, you, if you're wondering at all if happiness is tied to circumstantial perfection in your life, this slams the door on that because this is saying happy is the person who's persecuted. That's, that's telling you your circumstances will not be good. They will not be lined up in the way that you want. And yet, that person is still happy. Again, we ask how. Rather than a, than a checklist of things um, to be to make us happy, to achieve and accomplish happiness, we have a description on the left of someone who is, ha- who, who, who is happy and a description on the right of how it is found. How is someone found happy? So I think we can find some helpful encouragement on how do we find and, and not achieve happiness. As we, as we close, there'll be the last few things. First and foremost, we have to redefine happiness. I know I, I keep coming back to that, but we've been using uh, happy, the word happy and happiness um, in a certain way for all of our lives. And so we've got to remember when we use this word, we, we have to shift. We have to think differently about what happiness means. That when the Bible says blessed or happy, it means a deeper sense of joy and contentment, more than just a fleeting emotion. A happy person is someone who is satisfied regardless of their circumstances because of what they have in Christ. Right? This is a change in, in perspective more than just a change in behavior. Right? It's taking those things that you enjoy in life and finding a way to enjoy God in that, right? in whatever you do. Right? So whether you're at work and, and struggling and in a difficult season or you're on vacation with your family, we find ways to be content with God in those moments, no matter what the circumstance. You're enjoying God. Secondly, we have to remember the why. We have to remember this as our why. Why be righteous? Why repent from sin? Why read the Bible? Why come to church? There has to be a strong why. And that's what's given to us here, is that happiness is found. A true sense of happiness is found in those things. On a daily basis, repent and you remind yourself of what happiness is. And to do that, you, yes, you do have to use the tools that God has given us, right? You, you do have to commit yourself to the disciplines. Those are resources. Those are means of grace that God intends for you to use in that effort, right? He doesn't just give us these commands as arbitrary calls to obedience just for fun, right? They are meant for our help, for our uh, pursuit of sanctification, so start those things. If those aren't a regular part of your life, jump in. If you're not reading the Bible, just start. Uh, if you're somebody who says, you know what, I don't even know. Like this, it's this big, thick book that sits on my counter. I don't even know what to do with that. Um, there's a lot of help for you. We would love to help you with that. We actually pretty soon, um, Gwen and Abby and I have been working on um, a reading plan that we're going to put out there. And it's not, it's not a high-pressure thing. It just tells you, on a day when you have five to ten minutes, here's what you can read. 
And yes, you can check the box, but that's just to help you. That's just to help you keep the record, right? It's not, it's not to turn into anybody, right? Just to help you keep the record. But if you don't know, that's a great place to start. So look, look for those cards. We'll have those, we'll have those students. But we would love to help you find people around you who will help you pursue those disciplines so that you can remind yourself of the why. And then lastly, remember it's a group project, right? Last week, Jaron challenged us to think we before me. Well, the same is true here. Not only do we need others, other believers in our life to speak into us and to encourage us, we need to be doing that for each other, right? I think it's, I think it's possible for some of us to think, you know, I don't really need that. I don't really need uh, a small group or a Sunday school class or uh, a Bible study. I, I can do those things on my own. Well, even if that were true, which it's not, but, it, but even if it were true, you could be robbing someone else of the gifts that God has given you to pour into them. Right? We are not meant to do this alone. We cannot avoid doing this alone. So if you're not connected to other believers, that's my, that's my hope and my prayer for everyone at Emmaus, that every person at Emmaus has somebody, has multiple people in their life that they're pouring into and they're pouring into them. Somebody that you can call, that you can confess sin to, that you can be honest and open and vulnerable with, and they can pray for you and walk through that with you because that's what God intends for us. Right? And so if that's not something that you have in your life, please feel free to email. Call me. I would love to help you do that. That is, that is what I'm here to do because I think God intends for us to use that. And if we avoid it, if we ignore or neglect that, we can't expect to grow. We can't expect to be happy like he's called us because we need that help. So as we close this morning, uh, we're going to sing one more song in worship here in a minute, but I want you to think about honestly, what are you looking for in your life? What kind of happiness are you pursuing? Is it life? Is it circumstances? Is it success? Or are you finding your happiness in the Lord? So what things, what things have you set up in your life, have you committed to, to remind you of what that true happiness is? Are you surrounding yourself with people who remind you of this why and encourage you in that effort. So I, as we sing and as we pray, I would encourage you to spend some time thinking through that honestly and pray and ask that the Lord would reveal to you uh, what you can do in your life to pursue after the happiness that he has promised us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. God, that we woke up this morning uh, with that renewed in our life, even though we we sinned yesterday, and we sinned this morning that, that you renewed that grace and mercy for us. That is a gift that we do not deserve. God, I pray that you would be with us this morning as we consider, what are we pursuing in life? Are we, are we pursuing happiness as an emotion and comfort and money, or are we pursuing happiness in you, contentment in you regardless of our circumstances? God, I pray that we would be a people that are marked by our encouragement of each other, that we would spur one another on towards love and good deeds, knowing that that's where true satisfaction comes from. I pray that we would look around this room and, and see not just, not just people we meet with once a week, but that we would see family, we would see friends, we would see a community, and that we would be willing to take that first step and reach out to someone. God, we love you. We praise you for all that you have given us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.